This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air. Like the Kokako, the saddleback or Tieke belongs to the New Zealand wattlebird family. A family to which the Huia belonged and which has been established in this country since ancient times, much longer than most of our other birds. The saddleback takes its name from the bright reddish saddle on its back, which according to legend is the mark of Maui's hand. Sadly, this attractive bird has disappeared from the main islands and exists only on a few offshore islands, carefully chosen locations for resettlement away from predators, which appears to have saved the tieke from total extinction. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Welcome back to Community or Chaos. Hopefully more community and less chaos. Today we have with us Betty Mason Parker, Amnesty International's Dunedin North Group Coordinator and former chairperson of New, of New Zealand Amnesty International. Betty, could you tell us what led you to become active in Amnesty International and something about Amnesty International, please? Sure, Marvin. Thank you for having me, and hello to your listeners. Um, I've been involved in Amnesty since 1983 uh, in the Dunedin North Amnesty Group. Um, but Amnesty's been going since 1961. It started in the UK um, from a newspaper article about some young people that were arrested for toasting to freedom in a restaurant, and they were arrested. And Amnesty started from this article and people that were upset about just the simple toast to freedom. And so we still do that on what we call Amnesty's birthday. Um, Amnesty became um, a human rights organization and is known worldwide for um, its careful research. And so when Amnesty speaks out about a situation, its uh, information can be trusted because this information is verified across across all sorts of different areas. Amnesty gets its information um, from a variety of places. We have a large group of staff members in London, um, researchers for various countries and various issues, and they um, they look through media. They get eyewitness accounts of human rights abuses that may have happened in various places, family members gone missing, um, various various issues. And um, also human rights defenders, what, what Amnesty calls human rights defenders. And these are people on the ground in countries, uh, lawyers, um, journalists, those sorts of people that are feeding information in. So all this information comes into the London 
office and it's verified and then um Amnesty works in various ways. It sends information out to its worldwide members in the form of letter writing to governments asking that Joe Bloggs, um, who is imprisoned in an, a country and should be released. So Amnesty works in that way. Uh, they work directly uh Amnesty to that government. They work through the UN quite a lot because Amnesty um, follows international laws for a lot of their works. So they document these abuses, they verify the facts, and then the end results are hopefully that people are released from whatever has happened. Um, For instance, every year across the world, Um, In December, there's something that's called Right for Rights. Amnesty believes in the power of the pen. And so across the world, people work on the same eight cases. Um, We often have, before COVID times, we had a a table in the public library where we asked people coming in if they would sign a letter. And surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, a number of these cases are released because Amnesty puts pressure on governments to take action and release people. We hold these abusers and these governments to the bright light of Amnesty, and we want justice for people. And that's really how Amnesty works, Marvin. Has Am- the people targeted by governments changed at all? In the last 20 years, I've, I've noticed that, for instance, a number of people have been assassinated who have been environmentalists, particularly in Latin America. It's interesting. You know, um, since 1983, when I first joined Amnesty, the real focus was on disappearances in South America. And Amnesty coined that phrase, disappearances, you know, people who vanish, and um, and no one knows what happens to them, but they figure it's the government. For instance, there's this group in South America, or was, called the Mothers of the Disappeared yes. in Argentina, and, you know, they, they spray-painted, they wore scarves, and they spray-painted these scarves on the pavement in Buenos Aires, and their lost loved ones' names were stenciled in these scarves, and I get I get chill bumps when I even think about it. I saw it. And, you know, it's that that lack of fear of the consequences for standing up for someone. And that's that's the real human rights offender. So South America, when I first started, then the Middle East has been a big focus. Um, we worked against apartheid in South Africa, and now... We have issues arising, and like you say, with with the environmental issues, we are figuring there will be en- environmental refugees. But there are also groups that are being abused in places that are being deforested by large companies, or and large companies working with governments to sort of take land that belonged to indigenous people, and those indigenous groups are being um, abused. And that's in South America and Mexico and places like that. Well, well, 
Friends, you can podcast us by going to oar.org and then going to podcast in community or chaos. And as you're aware, Betty Mason Parker for Amnesty International is talking with us today. Uh, many people thought in relation to the Ukraine and Russia that a lot of what Putin was saying was bombast and would not dare commit a full-scale invasion of Ukraine until they actually did it. When and why did you come to realize that he might actually invade the Ukraine, and what led you to predict this early on? There's been quite a lead-up to this, hasn't there? Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of... I'll call it rhetoric. There was there was a lot of information that came out of Russia saying that it was going to happen and other countries around the world were trying to negotiate against it happening and speak hard against it happening. But Amnesty has always and will always focus on the civilians. So Amnesty has said from the start of this talk of an invasion into the Ukraine by Russia, that the civilians had to be protected, that aggression um, was a huge breach in, in what the charter of the UN said was against its charter, this act of aggression and this breach of peace. And uh, it's a use of force without justification. And Amnesty has determined that this Russian invasion of the Ukraine is a violation of the UN Charter and that it's a crime under international law. But Amnesty has always said the civilians need to be protected, and that's not happening at the moment. Was did Amnesty have information that led them to believe it would happen before it was actually happened? Oh, I don't think so. I think you know everybody was was hoping that it wouldn't happen. Um, we have no sort of information on the ground. I mean, there are there are people within Russia um, that Amnesty would call human rights defenders, but can't be identified. But, you know, we've all just been hoping, the whole world's been hoping that it wouldn't happen, but it has gone ahead now. How does Amnesty refer to the current conflict between Russia and Ukraine? Well, you know... Amnesty is quite careful in in the words that it uses. It sees it as as an invasion, as acts of aggression, um, and these attacks on on the Ukraine have have been focusing not only on sort of military things, but on on civilians, which Amnesty is very against. Oh, um, cities, haven't they? Yeah. Yeah, and, and this conflict, um, this conflict really needs to be bound by international law. And 
it's just not happening. There's in in Russia, for instance, you know, there's a a media crackdown, and so there's there's disinformation being fed to the to the Russian people, but but also the information they're getting um, has has the Russian spin on it, and Amnesty's concerned about the spread of false and malicious information and it it leads to harmful human rights content and it it really goes against the international covenant on civil and political rights it's propaganda of war and it advocates hate Um, there was quite a lot of hate speech in recent years, and it's sort of coined a phrase of hate speech, but it's not a, not a legal term, this hate speech, but advocating hate is. So within Russia, this crackdown on independent journalists and dissenting voices um, through protests, anti-war protests, um, is is decreasing the freedom of information that the Russian people are getting. What did you did you see the the television picture or uh, YouTube picture of the um, former media executive young woman who spoke out against the war on the media? Probably the last thing she did on the media. What did you think when you saw that? Well, she's a newsreader. I think she was a newsreader, and she had some sort of sign that said, you know, this is disinformation and and that sort of thing. Bravery, you know, that's someone who is is not afraid to speak out. She obviously, she would know that she was likely to be arrested. Oh, yeah. And what's... How long will somebody like that be? Well, for? what's really interesting is that, you know, you mention um, Facebook and social media, um, but across this crackdown, um, Facebook and Twitter have been shut down, and that's how a lot of people get their news, so that's a way to to shut the news going in. Um, they, the, the media outlets are not allowed to use words in Russia, war, attack, invasion, and the punishment that you you speak of for perhaps for this newsreader, using those words or protesting or dissenting at all, uh, you can get um, you can get up to fifteen years in prison for doing this. So you know. It, it it's serious stuff that's going on. So that the Russian people. Um, are only getting one side of the story. Can Russia effectively um, close down Twitter and other um, um, kinds of that kind of communication? Yeah, yeah, they can. And you know, a lot of people use social media. I mean, one of the conundrums with the whole thing about cracking down on the media is that. Countries do have a right at certain times to limit freedom of expression within their countries, depending on what the circumstances are. Um, you can you can limit freedom of expression, but not freedom of opinion or thought. And this falls under international laws. There are safeguards for this repression, 
Um, it has to be proportional. It has to have reviews. And it can't just be a blanket prohibition of information. And this is really what's happening in Russia. It's very hard to enforce something like that. But there are international laws. What's happening in in the West through this um, media crackdown is that the e- EU Council has banned state-owned Russian outlets, media outlets, called Russia Today and Sputnik. These are the leading outlets for false information in the Russian media. They're justifying um, the actions and conflict and supporting aggression and misinformation. So the, the, these EU countries have, have shut down access to those, those medias. But, you know, what, what ends up happening with when media is shut down or controlled is that it needs to be countered with trustworthy information. And Russia has shut down um, access to the BBC and Radio Free Europe. Radio Free Europe was used quite a lot during World War II when those countries that were uh, taken over by um, the Axis powers shut down their information, but they could get radio information from Radio Free Europe. So, I mean, that's that's how the West is trying to counter this, but it's it's not easy. Do you think it was a mistake to shut down those networks? Uh, it seems to me that most Europeans probably have a very st- strong opinion already about the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and feel threatened by it. Well, I, th- I just think that anything you can do will help. I think it's a pretty drastic thing to to do that. And as you say, you know, w- what's it really going to do? And there's that whole freedom of expression. But, you know, I think it's, in some ways, it's like, it's like when we have our commissioner for human rights here in New Zealand, and they can say um, this person advocates um, hate speech against a certain minority, and we're not going to allow them, and the, we're not going to allow them to speak or come in the country. And I think that's probably where this shutdown by the European Union Council on on that media coming out of Russia comes from. Putin was saying things like the Ukrainian government with were Nazis, um, cons- and, and that seems crazy considering the fact that the present president was somewhat of a reformer and a media person before he got into politics and was Jewish, is still Jewish, it's and all, advocated it, free speech. Well, it's all part of that misinformation. You know, it's 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 turning somebody into a monster and that helps to justify what you do. I mean and that that's why I think the West has to be careful how they talk about the Russian president. You know, you can't sort of turn him into a I mean he he does his own job being a monster. Do you but, think that Biden may have made a mistake in some of the things he's not that he's totally wrong in his opinions about Putin. But is a mistake some of the things he said about Putin? Also, the idea that he can say that uh, Putin should not remain president of Russia. Could that have a, a, a bad knock-on effect? Well, I think you have to be really careful what you say. 
Um, you don't want to. You don't want to increase the likelihood that this war will ramp up and the Russian people will get in behind um, Putin and his actions. I mean, you you have to go pretty carefully with somebody who has his finger on all sorts of pulses that could affect that area of Europe and Eastern Europe. I, I just think you have to be really careful. And I think, I think Biden's advisors probably let him know he wasn't careful enough. Okay. How many people have been affected in Ukraine by the war, and how many refugees have been leaving, and where are they going to? Well, yeah. Yeah, lots. I mean, like the whole of the country has been affected. And, you know, been affected directly. And then you think of all of the Ukrainian people that are living around the world, and in New Zealand as well. And this is happening in their home, and they're upset, and their families, things are happening to their families. Um, remember that civilians should not be targeted in in a situation like this, and and they are, in some instances, being targeted. If if I can just go back to to amnesty. And how Amnesty collects information. There's something that Amnesty uh, initiates in a crisis like this, and it's called the Crisis Evidence Lab. And they collect human rights evidence because they don't have anybody on the ground in those extremely dangerous situations. They're using the audiovisual footage that comes out from media that are there in the Ukraine um, looking for um, human rights abuses, attacks on civilians um, that they can they can say is human rights evidence. Um, they're looking at those banned weapons, cluster bombs that Amnesty's against, and these dumb bombs that have come in. So that's one way that Amnesty's looking at this. But attacks have have focused on hospitals and schools. I just heard um, this morning on the news that a school had been attacked further out into the west of the Ukraine, and there were people sleeping there. No one was was hurt or killed. But, you know, it's that whole idea that... In this day and age, when you can target your weapons, you don't target where civilians are. But the refugees um, are are leaving the country in droves if they can. Um, just recently, and so it's women and children for you know ninety five percent internally. So they're moving from the east, from the Black Sea, those cities that be, are being attacked, to the west. So they're internal refugees, six and a half million, we think. And close countries, if people can get out, they've they're taking just as of this week three point seven million. For instance, Poland has taken 2.2 million. Imagine, that's half of our population of our country. Romania, Moldova, Hungary, Slovakia, Belarus, and Russia, because there are certain areas 
of the Ukraine that are pro-Russia. And um, so you can imagine, you know, this number of refugees coming into a country and the importance of them having, having their rights. And Amnesty would say, you know, it's really important that refugees have their rights. They have right to accommodation. They have right to food. Once they're there, they have right to um, education and medicine. Um, and, you know, the, the other thing that's awful in a terrible situation is that these humanitarian corridors within the Ukraine aren't happening. These, these are challenges for a safe escape route. Just not happening. Oh, I'm going to play a piece of music now, and this music uh, refers to refugees. It doesn't ref- of course, it doesn't refer to Ukrainian refugees because it's a few years old. It's more an Australian song, but... folk in Kalimantan You sunk at weavers in Lombok And you who play the gamelan You are not my enemy No matter how different we may be I do not wish you harm I wish you well And you to prayer in the mosques of Isfahan And you who wear the hijab with pride In Kabul or Tehran You are not my enemy No matter how different we may be I do not wish you harm I wish you well From the murdering guns From shattered homes and dreams And you whose nights are haunted By the whistling bombs and the children's screams And you who in your desperation Try to reach this shore And you who just can't take the violence anymore From the terror on a safe journey's end You are not my enemy One day neighbors we may be Maybe, maybe one day I'll call you friend Fear and hate are the enemy Hold on to hope and 
That was Faye White and Friends, These People, This Place, Everyday Grace, a CD from Australia. You Are Not My Enemy. We are talking with Betty Mason Parker, Amnesty International, and you can podcast this by going to oar.org and then going to podcasts and going to Community or Chaos. Betty, um, while we're on Amnesty International and refugees, um, how does that affect other countries outside of Europe? Well, you know, it it affects the whole world, especially, but especially those close countries to the Ukraine. This is the biggest refugee crisis since World War II, mainly women and children trying to get away from the conflict. Um, We want to minimize human suffering and prioritize humanitarian concerns. Um, And as I said, they're fleeing internally, but also externally. And to that end, um, the EU has... um, set about a temporary protection directive. And this is specifically for people who are fleeing from their own country into neighboring countries. And it came about for the first time in the Yugoslav conflict in 2001 when there were mass displacements from the conflict within Yugoslavia. And now with the Ukraine, um, this directive has been initiated again. And what this, what this allows countries, what it, this insists for EU countries to do is set up quicker resident permits for the refugees, uh, faster work permits, um, 
as I said, accommodation, uh, welfare payments, education, and medical care. Just helping them settle in quickly because, you know, no one wants to leave their own country. Um, so Amnesty has called on these EU states to treat all of these fleeing refugees equally. Um, all groups. There's been a little bit of talk about some discrimination. Uh, Amnesty doesn't have verified facts as yet, but it's completely unacceptable if it happens. But, you know, as as in your question that I'm just getting around to answering about it affecting the rest of the world, New Zealand has set about to um, set up permits for Ukrainian New Zealanders, families who are trying to escape the conflict. Um, up about 4,000 permits are available. These are close family members that can come here. And from the reading that I've done, it follows along with that EU directive about um, making sure we get quicker resident permits and work permits and so on and so on. So, you know, New Zealand's going to be taking in 4,000 from this conflict. Should we be willing to take in more? Well, how interesting you should ask me that, because um, for the longest time, um, New Zealand had, I think it was 350 refugees allowed for years and years. And uh, with the Labor government, it's been bumped up to 1,500. But for the last couple of years, we have not reached that 1,500 limit. Um, so this fourth. Why is this the case? Go ahead. Oh, well, how is this the case? Well, what, you know, I, I would think COVID has had a little bit to do with it. Mm -hmm. You know, with getting people to come in. But you know, we are quite low down on the list of countries that accept refugees from overseas. Um, but with this 4,000 coming in, you know, uh, Minister Farfoy has done a great job, but we would like to ask the government to up that number, you know. 4,000 sounds like a good yearly number to us um, because refugees that come here don't always stay. They, they want to go back to their own country. But... Um, Yes, so we've taken those. And the other really good thing, if I can just mention, is those, those, those refugees that are on Manus Island that are, Australia has allowed New Zealand to take in. That's, that's a great thing, and that's been hard work for almost nine years to get Australia to agree to that. And whatever happened that made them want to change their decision about uh, letting us have those those refugees. Uh, we're very happy about that. There must be lots of Australians who want to be fairer or more humane. Oh, I think there are. And, you know, the same for Russians, you know. Not all the Russians. People people are have goodness in them throughout the world. It's just, you know, to, to sway your government to uh, make better decisions, That that's that's up to the citizens, up to outside uh, pressure as well, and that's what amnesty does as well. If things go as well as can be hoped for and the, the war ends and Russia was to evacuate uh, under some kind of terms Ukraine, wouldn't Ukraine still need lots of help 
to reabsorb their population and to build back community. And would Amnesty be part of this in any way as a human rights group? Um, there will there will be the need for a lot of rebuilding just from the pictures we've all seen on our television screens of those black sea towns that have been flattened, really. Um, Amnesty uh, would be involved in the in the human side of things, yeah. Marvin, you know, the refugees and making sure that as there is rebuilding that there's, you know, there's no discrimination and, you know, all rights are, are taken care of. I would imagine the rest of the world will help depending on what happens. I mean, who yeah. knows what's going to happen. Sure. You were talking about the fact that Amnesty had to analyze information without always being on the spot. Now, we know that certain weapons of war are considered um, illegal, and other weapons are, well, on the name beyond the list of illegal, come very close to it. Does Amnesty have any information about the use of weapons of war in Ukraine that cross they may cross those boundaries. I I think we all know about these weapons and hope that they never happen. I mean, you look at what happened in um, in Syria when chemical weapons were used against their own populations, and you know people were aghast at things like that. There's not a whole lot you can do to stop it, but but world opinion concentrates on that uh, you know there's there's been arms transfers going on for years around the ukraine as it stepped away from russia um, the european um, countries uh, nato countries have been um, sending weapons into the ukraine and and russia um has been banned from receiving weapons from these same countries, but they have their own domestic production. And Amnesty doesn't have a whole lot to say about these transfers. Um, and their main concern is that, you know, all of these weapons, no matter whose hands they're in, are causing devastation to the civilian population. There's also the risk of these arms falling into the wrong hands and making things worse. But, yeah, bad weapons are bad weapons. I mean, now they have weapons that are not poison gas, but they have weapons that can suck the oxygen out of whole areas of cities. Mind-boggling, yeah. Mind-boggling when you think about... not letting, not opening up corridors to let people get away from that sort of devastation. I mean, that's one thing I think people should really be focusing on there. And, and you know, there are some things that people can do. Um, if you go to the Amnesty website, amnesty.org.nz, there are actions you can take. Um, and, you know, every, every, every letter makes a difference. Can you talk about the humanitarian corridors? What does Amnesty know about? 
Are they being respected? And do they have them where they need to? And is there truth in that sometimes people along the the Black Sea have been, whether they've, they've gone to Russia, has it been voluntary? Well, you know, these safety routes that have to be agreed on by both parties, mainly the Russians, um, ha- have been set up but not been respected. Um, um, these escape routes allow people to get away from the worst of the fighting and you know, people have fought to get onto trains, and um, once they get to a train stop, then they walk for miles with their gear and with their children and their grandparents and their dogs and their precious items. What would you take with you in one bag? Um, and for those that can get away, there is some hope once they get to a bit more safety. But for those that are staying and can't get away and those corridors shut, they need protection. And Amnesty has called on all the parties to agree to establish these these corridors. It's just... How does Amnesty feel about arms transfer once the war began? Oh, yeah, well, you know... Uh, the arms transfers the arms transfers are you know are going to impact on the civilian populations sure. um, and there are people going into those con- into the Ukraine to actually bolster up their army and bring in weapons um, it's a terrible situation you know and amnesty doesn't have a whole lot to say about about these arms transfers, other than, you know, there has to be, you, you have to think very carefully how, how things escalate with armed transfers and no-fly zones as well. You know, there's this call for the president of the Ukraine when he speaks to parliament groups or to the U.S. Congress, for instance. You know, he wants no-fly zones enforced by NATO countries. And, and what that really will do is it will, it will widen the conflict. Um, it'll piss off President Putin and, you know, this military enforcement of those no-fly zones impacts on civilians as well. And Amnesty Amnesty doesn't have a lot to say about these no-fly zones except to say, you know, really what needs to happen is the UN needs to come in with peacekeeping. And, you know, maybe that will be part of the negotiations that happened between the Ukraine government and the Russian government to try and de-escalate this conflict. Well, many, some Europeans, and I think also Biden until recently, said that the no-fly zones would bring in the danger of uh, NATO uh, air forces and Russian air forces combating each other, which could lead to a much greater conflict outside of Ukraine. Uh, Just escalates things, doesn't it? Because the Ukraine wanted to join 
NATO, I think, that has sort of flipped a switch with the Russian government. Do you think, why do you think that flipped a switch? Are there things in their history and geography that would make them nervous? Well, I, I, I think so. And a, a pipeline runs through the Ukraine that gets the Russian gas to out to the west. Um, I'm not a historian on this area, so I can't really comment too much about it. But um, I think from what I've read that the president of Russia um, doesn't like that the Ukraine broke away and that now it wants to join a Western organization. There's also the idea that um, sanctions that are already being um, enforced through other countries, sanctions on Russia and the Belarus, um, might have a positive impact on on de-escalating things. But amnesty doesn't take doesn't take a, po- a position on these sanctions, but they would say that sanctions on individuals, not on countries, individuals that have influence um, and that might contribute to human rights violations um, is a way forward. But Amnesty thinks that um, IGOs, uh, international government organizations, know quite a bit about these individuals, and they they can comment more on these individuals for sanctions. Uh, did Amnesty take a, a, um, a view on the sanctions against apartheid in South Africa? Okay, so I'm scratching my head Sorry. and back to, re- back to ago, remember that's... about what it was. I mean, I, I think, once again, Amnesty, you know, focuses on the, the black South Africans that apartheid was trying to crush and the human rights abuses and the jail terms and the murders that happened there. And... They focused more on that, if I remember correctly, than on on sanctions. I mean, there were plenty enough sanctions that went on. I mean, there were the there was the All Blacks stopping their tours there. And look, I mean, I, I'd have to go back and okay. you know well, into the know deep the memory. Sanctions, including economic sanctions, had quite a strong effect on South Africa, but on Iraq. It had no effect except this humanitarian harm to the people living in Iraq. Right, and and I think Amnesty would would say that if sanctions are imposed, then the citizens of the country that has those sanctions imposed they have to be considered. It has to, you have to think about their right to food, their right to medicine, like happened in in Syria, you know, and people are still suffering from that. Um, So you have to be quite careful and monitor the situation for what's going to happen. You have to be thoughtful about how you go about things. Okay, I'm going to play another piece of music, or at least part of a piece of music. 
This is Joan Baez, a quiet and early song. We're talking with 
Betty Mason Parker from Amnesty International about the Ukraine and the conflict there, a war there. Now, the misinformation and social media has had a very come to the fore in recent years, particularly around Russia, but not just around Russia. No. Um, that misinformation is played out not only through the sort of print and and voice media, but through social media companies. For instance, I mean, if you think back to that awful time here with the um, mosque shootings in Christchurch and pressure that our government initiated to the big social media countries, companies to um, limit hatred content, remove content. Um, it's, it's a challenge. Uh, these social media companies have huge responsibility for ramping up hatred. They're not neutral. Um, they have a huge power. Um, and it's the whole idea, the conundrum again, is that freedom of expression versus propaganda and hatred that gets played out in the social media. And they, they should act appropriately to stop this hatred content wherever it comes up, you know, whether it's out of a, a special crisis or whether it's just in our daily lives. You know how, if you use social media, things pop up and, you know, you might be looking at, for, at a country and it'll say, oh, you can travel here. They use these al algorithms to increase what you've been searching for. And, but that also means that if you're looking for a bit of misinformation, you get bombarded with it and you can just be swamped by it. It needs an overhaul. Uh, and the result will be a benefit to humanity, uh, an increase in our privacy and a decrease in hate speech and information. So this, this is not just in relation to Russia and the Ukraine. Um, there have been problems with the uh, Myanmar um, problems with um, the Rohingya population, and in Ethiopia, ac across the world, social media has been used to discriminate against people. And, you know, it would be a, a, an amazing opportunity for social media companies to have a consistent global approach. Because that's what you, you're hoping that... Um social media companies can be encouraged somehow to regulate themselves. To regulate themselves and to work for the good of humanity. Imagine, you know, if they sort of decided, okay, we're going to focus on the goodness in people instead of on that sort of black, dark side, that hatred speech, that, you know, that first song you played, Marvin, about, you know, every people are like us you know refugees have the same hopes and plans you know well let's hope that um, we can actually think more about what we have in common and the 
human beings really mostly want to cooperate and help each other, so let's go out like that. Thanks a lot, Betty, for coming on. It's been a pleasure. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.